Built Not Born, episode 35. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Ricardo Miglarese. Ricardo Miglarese is the co-owner and head instructor at Balance Studios MMA in Philadelphia. Ricardo is a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under the legendary instructor, Helson Gracie. On the podcast today, Ricardo and I discuss fatherhood. What's it like raising kids in today's world? We discuss why his father, his earliest mentor, taught him the game of chess to learn the art of maneuvering. We discuss the state of jiu-jitsu from self-defense to competition. And Ricardo tells us why the most important person we should be competing with is the person who we were yesterday. Ricardo tells some great stories how he and his brother Phil met Steve Maxwell and how that group brought Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu into Philadelphia. Rick shares the lessons he learned from moving out to Los Angeles to train directly under the Gracie family with the likes of Elio and Horion and Helson Gracie. I was so excited when Ricardo agreed to come on the show. I've been lucky enough to know and train with Ricardo for the last 20 years. Of the hundreds of techniques I've seen him do on the mat, I think the number one thing I learned from him was tenacity, how never to quit, how to keep going, how to keep adapting and iterating and always come back from challenges better and stronger than before. Rick's a fascinating person. He's got a huge personality. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Ricardo Miglaris, fifth degree black belt under Helson Gracie, co-owner of Balance Studios, entrepreneur and world-class instructor. And remember, life is built, not born. Ricardo Miglaris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Ricardo Miglaris, mo- mostly known for being a fifth degree black belt in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu under Helson Gracie and my brother Phil Miglaris. I've been doing it for maybe about 26 years now, so it's been a good chunk of my life. I'm f- I'll actually be 43 this month, so I made it to 43 almost. And I pretty much dedicated my life around this beautiful art, which is, if you don't know about it, it becomes much more of a lifestyle than an art. It was probably the best thing that I've ever did in my life because it led me to all these other great things like having a beautiful family, being a better man, just doing everything better in life just surrounds this lifestyle that you're a part of as well. So, Absolutely. I want to get into your career, how you and Phil started Balance, your days at the academy, training with all the Gracie's, Horion, Helson, and uh, Hoist. But before we get there, I want to start all the way back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Ah, so I grew up in, in South Philly, but it was a little area called Queens Village. If you walk around Queens Village today, you would think I grew up, you know, in, in a rich area. But back then, even though it was an up and coming area, it was actually an awesome area to grow up in because it was so multifarious, it, it, not only culture, but like, well, culture, even the foods and the people. And I was literally two blocks away from South Street. 
So those of you who don't know, South Street is probably one of the main streets that usually people just walk up and down just to hang out. But there was different eras of South Street. There was like the punk rock era, and then there was the, you know, now it's like more mixed with the hipsters and everything. But you'll, you go down that street, you'll have everything from bars to, to clothing shops to everything. So it pretty much brings in people from all places of Philly. So it was huge and very interesting growing up in two blocks away from there because, man, we got a piece of everything when we went down there. I actually moved back there. I'm not too far away from there. And now it's, it's a pretty affluent area. Nice neighborhood. When I say neighborhood, where I was before I had kids, I, I was in Fishtown for a while. And it was more like no kids around there. And then when I had kids, I was like, man, I, I miss those days of growing up where I can go outside and there'd be a bunch of kids out there outside playing. It's, it's like hard to find that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I went back to, you know, my old neighborhood. I found a place. Now, as you, I'm four kids deep. <laughs> so between you and I, I look Italia. outside and see all the kids. Most of them are mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're like Gallier like Gracie, man. Just keep having yeah. kids. That's awesome. But another interesting thing about growing up in that, it was you sit down and you think, you're like, man, we're the last generation, at least I am. I know how it is to grow up without technology. And then almost like the second part of my life, we had set technology from our kids and all. They don't know how it is to walk out of the house and go knock for somebody. That's what we used to say. Let's go knock for uh, Joe. Let's go knock for it. That means you went through the house, you actually knock, say, hey, man, is Joey home? We'll come out and play. They like text now. I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, man, because sometimes you yell at your kids on the phone. I get it. The, the phones are even addicted to us because business is this and that, whatever we're doing, Facebook, Instagram. So I had to sit down. I'm like, I keep yelling at my kids for being on the phone. So they have no idea what it is to be without that technology. And even I find myself getting swarmed into that. So I kind of feel like we were lucky back when I was growing up because I actually went out of the house. I grew up two blocks away from South Street. That was like my internet, my people watching, my scrolling through was me walking down the street. I'm like, oh my God, look at that dude. Oh my God, look how interesting that dude is. And again, we had that, that multifarious cultural community. And then that one street that brought people from all you know walks of life down. It was just great. It was an interesting you know way to grow up. And obviously, being in Philly, it was rough. Everybody's, they know me. They know I'm no stranger to like getting into little scraps here and there on the street. But that was normal back then. That was normal for kids growing up, especially, you know, because we were out all the time. Mm-hmm. We were out. I find 10 years old as a very formative time in people's lives. What was it like around the dinner table when you were 10 years old? Who was there? Describe the scene. What was going on? Well, I'll go even, I'll even go a little further because 10 years old, I think it was around 10, 11 or 12. I think it was around there that my, my mother and my father separated. So I'll go a little further back because I used to love going to my grandmother's house with all the cousins. If you grew up Italian, which I know you did, we all had our separate table. (laughs) <laughs> but it wasn't so far away from the adult table. So where we were separated, we were we really weren't. So it was like all the cousins and everybody, and then all the adults, and my father would be at the head of the table, my grandmother and my grandfather. They would be like, you met my father, you knew my father when he was alive. Absolutely, yeah. You knew the presence he had when he walked in the room. Unbelievable. Hands, hands were like double mine. He was, but super, super intelligent person. And just 
we I remember just overhearing just stories after stories about him. It was always nice and exciting to um almost like you're eavesdropping, but you're like right there on the stories about your grandfather and your father and everything. And being an Italian family, that was the place. Your, your dinner table was the place to discuss things and find out how your day went. What are you up to? What are you doing? This and that. So we were very loud. Yeah. We were a loud family. We still are. Yeah. <laughs> and I pride myself. Uh, my, my, my wife now, she she's very into family. She's very family oriented, which I love about her. And we brought back that Sunday dinner concept. Nice. You know, Sunday dinner. I feel like that's a concept that was awesome. That's, that's one of the main traditions that as a kid, like you said, that you miss because it's, oh my God. It's like these kids, all they do is go out, go on their phones and say, I don't even know what my, what my kid did today or this and that. <laughs> Sunday dinners or dinner in general, that was the time to, hey, put your phone down, do this, do that. My wife reminds me, hey, put your phone down. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah you're right. Boom. I got it. You know, yep. it's family time. And then you get so caught up. Like last night, for instance, was Sunday, usually the day after Thanksgiving. I don't know how Italian you are. The Christmas. As we're throwing a turkey out. Yeah, yeah. Turkey's so, not even uh, out of the oven yet. And the stuff's yeah. going up. Yeah, absolutely. So I happened, we happened to have all the kids together yesterday because I have two kids from another. Yep. So I had all the kids there this weekend. Yesterday, we not only had a family dinner, but we spent all day decorating, pulling the stuff out, awesome. laughing, argue, like playful arguments. You know, just what families do, breaking stones. My yeah. daughters are now like, both of them are old enough. I have a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old. They're both just like, they're old enough to get my jokes. And then they give it back now. So it's actually fun to watch. And they're so smart. Girls? Yeah, oh, way smarter. Way smarter. Than way smarter. Boys. Oh my, my goodness. We both have nine-year-olds. I know your daughter, uh, Natalia, was born about the same year my, yes. my, my daughter, Sienna, was born. And uh, she runs the house at nine years old. She could run the house without no one here. She'd be fine. Bills would be paid. Like, it would be all squared away. Oh, yeah. Oh, they totally, they're in sync. My, my son, he, he's on another level, too. But he's on his own. He's, he's in his own world. He's in his own world. <laughs> my daughters, you got to watch them. You got to watch them. You mentioned about how loud, like sometimes, like say Italian families get. I have an uncle who says, I love loud families. The quiet ones scare me. So yeah. people aren't saying they're in their head that they're the people that scare us. Yeah. But how about looking back? What's the most vivid memory of your childhood? The most vivid memory of my childhood? Man, how far back do you want to go? Your, your call, man. What comes to mind? Honestly, um, working at my father's grocery store. I can remember those because, and, and finally when he allowed me to do it, because we came from such a hardworking family. There was no, we grew up, we had, you would think we had nothing, but really we had everything, but you wouldn't know it because we had food on the table. We had, I had two parents in the house. I had, so I remember being the youngest, my brother got to work, my sister got to work. And it was like the coolest thing. I used to see Phil get up. He used to go to the grocery store. And I'm like, I, I want to go. I want to go work. I want to work. What kid does that begs to work? Meanwhile, it's I just wanted to be a part of that. So I remember the time when it was my time that I was able to, he brought my brother and I in. And I remember him letting me use the work, the register, which is I'm a little kid. I'm like eight, nine years old, whatever I am. And working a register. I'm like, I'm in charge of money. He was like, yep. Go ahead. And he teaches how to count. And if you knew the presence of my father, if my his son was counting the money, yeah. nobody even like debated. They just waited. Like my son's <laughs> going to count the money. 
But that's how he taught us. And he was very, he was very into life lessons. He did a lot of talking, but he did more life lessons and let us make more mistakes without helping us within reason. Like we were in danger, obviously he would chime in, but if he saw something arise, like I would do something and I mess up, he would let me feel that. So I always knew, like you talk about vivid memories. I always cherish those moments actually, because even stack, my job was pretty much stacking the food, stacking the cans, making sure everything was ordered. And me, that's how I'm meticulous I am today. I'm like, everything's on the order and things have to stay colored <laughs> like this. Yeah. So that was a great moment in my life because, you know, it just represents everything that I am today. It's like, work hard, get results. We've been taught that from the get. One of many, I should say, because I had yeah. a lot of. So touch base on your father, your dad, being there at early when Bat, when you and Phil opened up balance, I remember such a presence of your dad when he would walk in, literally this happened multiple times. We would be rolling an open mat and your dad would just walk in the door and we would stop rolling or at the edge of the mat and shake his hand. Like, <laughs> yeah. like someone's big on shaking hands. Yeah. 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 Like he would <laughs> shake hands like, and everyone would stop rolling. He would be going, someone, you would be side mounted and someone has a, a move on you and every, everyone would stop and shake his hand. Yeah. Like, oh, like such a presence. And yeah. um, not only was he a, a, a father to you, but I remember you telling me stories of he was a mentor. I remember the books he would have you read. I remember you told me my dad gave me nothing. Like he would never, like you needed something, you had to go work. Like he wouldn't say, oh, here's hundred bucks. Well, I say that all the time. I said the best thing my father ever gave me was nothing. Mm-hmm. I just talked about that in another, I did a podcast not too long ago with uh, Marco. And he asked that same oh, yeah. question. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I told him the same quote. He asked me like, if I had a quote, what would that be? And I was like, can I quote my father? Because yeah. That's literally what I live on. The best thing he really gave me was nothing. It doesn't mean he didn't give me anything. Mm-hmm. It just means he allowed my brother and I to work for what we got. It wasn't about anything that I have today. I can honestly say it was because of his knowledge, not because of his materials or anything that he gave me. Materialistic. It was the knowledge that he gave us or allowed us to obtain through his lessons mm-hmm. that builds what today with Phil and I. Actually, I got to wait. Check this out. So these are all my father's books. When he passed away, I I pretty much emulated his office. But these are all his books, if you can see, on at his desk. Yeah, Homer. Yeah, Homer, Grey's Anatomy, Sherlock Holmes. If you, I mean, if you think Edgar Allan Poe, classics. And then this was the book that there it is. Yeah, yeah, Richard Smith. Richest so, Man in Babylon. It's such a life lesson. And I, I remember you and I spoke about that book 10 years ago. Like that book yep. is, it, that is like an MBA right there if you read that book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it, the funny thing is he made us read that as kids mm-hmm. that we had no idea. We were like, Dad, I don't even know what the heck they're talking about. He goes, it doesn't matter. One, you're going to learn how to read. <laughs> Two, you're going to look back at this, which we did, and you're going to realize this is how I raised you. And this is part of, how, part of how I raised this. And man, when he passed away, I read it again. I keep it in my desk right here. I remember the, he also made you read Machiavelli, The Prince. And uh, yeah. 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 I mean, imagine that you had a dad. What a gift. You had a father that literally gave you the classics of literature and said, you read this. Like, you must read that. Yeah. And what amazing. What an but he not only told us to read it, he, he raised us and he made it real. Mm-hmm. He had a thing about him. He, first of all, he was highly intelligent. We laughed because... He, he has, you remember how meticulous he was. He had files after files after files. He actually made a personal file for himself. When he passed away, we were going through all the stuff, what to keep, what not to keep, how that goes. And he had an IQ test he got taken. 
1978. Okay. Now that was the year I was born. Yeah. So I always joke around. I was like, oh, he probably had me and thought he was dumb. And he had a- <laughs> but he was way above average. And we always knew, I always knew he was my go-to guy with mm-hmm. anything, yeah. whether it was accounting, whether it was something personal going on in my life. He was very busy. Like, and if he didn't know the, the answer, he would find it. Mm-hmm. Or he would know the journey to take to obtain the information. So he was like, so I, I say when I lost him, I lost my mentor, but he's here every day because I still learn from him today because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's what my dad was talking about. Something comes awry in the business. And I'm like, man, I get frustrated because everybody gets frustrated. Mm-hmm. Nobody's immune to frustration. Nobody's immune to aggravations in life. Nobody's immune to family issues, to friends issues. Nobody's immune to any of this. And my father said, look, if you spend your life trying to solve these issues or this, you're never going to solve an issue absolute like that. But what you do have to learn how to do, no matter what comes in your way, maneuvering. He was big on maneuvering, which is why he taught us chess at a very early age, because it was a system and a structure of strategy to maneuver around and get to where you need to be. Sometimes you lose. Actually, I had never beat him. <laughs> and I'm pretty good. Like before we got on this, on this podcast, I was playing, I playing like 20 people in chess right now. <laughs> and I do that just for a mental state, just to keep me sharp. And it actually calms me down. It's one of those extracurricular activities I do just to calm me down. But yeah. maneuvering is the key in life because it, it, you're never going to solve most issues. You're never going to stop stupid people from existing or ignorant. I should say ignorant. You're never going to do it. You're never going to change ignorant people. You may change a few, but it's not going to be a direct result of you. It's going to be maybe your successes in life will make people think about people like you or people or you in general differently. And that's how you really, in my opinion, that's how you change people for the better. You don't go directly at them. You don't attack people. So you don't do that because... One, all you do is you manifest anger. Two, you don't really solve anything because stuff gets lost. And I feel like a lot of arguments, the point gets lost and then it turns into something frustration. I lead by example. You got to lead by example. And if you can lead by example, you can pretty much hopefully change people. And I'm able to do that through jujitsu. I joke around all the time. I go, the only thing I'm ever good at is jujitsu. I'm just good at jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And my, my wife goes, Stop it. you're good at a lot of things. I'm like, yeah, because jiu-jitsu taught me so much. It's not just fighting. Jiu-jitsu taught me to be a, a, you know, a better father. Jiu-jitsu taught me to be so humble that I know that – am I allowed to curse on here? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It, it taught me that I'm not the shit. Once you realize that you're, you're such a, a small thing in the world and that you're so like whatever, that you start to appreciate. You can only appreciate stuff – when you understand that you're not the shit. Mm-hmm. Seriously, think about yeah. it. Because people who think like, oh, they're God's gift to earth, like they're walking in the room. I see it all the time. And it's most people. And it's a facade, by the way. They come in, you know, they think, oh, yeah, you see, this thing just exists because I'm here. So what does that do? That takes away appreciation. I appreciate so much more that I sat back and said, huh, you know what? I'm not the baddest guy in the world. I'm not the toughest. I'm not the, there's no such thing really. But jujitsu has a way of as soon as you put your foot on the mat, <laughs> yeah. unless you, I was lucky enough to, to, to get that experience at 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Plus 
Prior to that, I had people in my life like my father, my mother, and also my brother, who was a big influence, to, to set you back. Yep. But as soon as you come puffing your chest and thinking, like every kid, my dad was like, hey, guess what? <laughs> that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the only person you should ever compete with is who you were yesterday. Yeah. You, and if you're competing with all these other people, you're wasting a lot of time. And that's time that could be spent with your family. That's time that could be spent doing something constructive. Absolutely. And you mentioned something earlier, like, like jujitsu, like once you step on the mat, like it's humbling. You and Phil, that sign you have at all your schools, please, it's all about ego. Please yeah. use an ego at the door, enter with yeah. the beginner's mind. And you have to walk through that sign every time you walk through balance. And uh, yeah. it's so true. It's not about you. And there's always someone that they were stronger, faster. Once you lose the ego, life becomes better. And it's- Yeah, it's not about you. Because let me ask you a question, Joe. Do you remember your great, great grandfather? No chance. Yeah, you know why? Because we don't matter after a few years. Some of us don't, but most of us don't. So that's how small we really are. With the social media and stuff, maybe it will be different in the future. But honestly, it's, look, your presence is is important. Whatever whatever reason why you're here, it's important now. Yeah, yeah. you want a monument now, the present moment, your mind, what you do right now. Like, yes. I think you mentioned, like, uh, like Marcus Aurelius said in meditations, like Hadrian, all these emperors that ruled the world, like Roman emperors, like two, three emperors later, no one remembers them. You got to live in the moment and be, like you said, lead by example in the moment. I want to get into your jujitsu career now. 16 years old, how did you get involved with Brazilian jiu jitsu? So I always say 1994 was my day that I started jiu jitsu, but in reality, it wasn't because I knew about jujitsu when I was in grade school, seventh and eighth grade, because of Phil. But I don't ever count those years because it was either me dropping in or Phil teaching me a choke and, this and, that, blah, blah, blah. and I was out doing my own thing, being a kid, being a stupid kid. And it wasn't only until that 16 year old, 1994, I went into the gym because obviously that's, I think, when that was when the UFC and Hoist Gracie won was and it was like oh my god this stuff is cool and then plus i had some things going on in my life like i said before we fought a lot and i was getting in a little bit of trouble so my brother was getting worried but his kind of worries is like no nonsense it's like yo get in the gym stop your bullshit get in the gym you're doing stupid stuff it was really like we didn't beat around the bush my family we're like you're being stupid get in the gym now that's it so i started really getting in there and then I started to really like it because it was something that I was get, actually getting good at. And I didn't, and I was doing it on my own, if that makes any sense. And at that time, I was the young, I was probably the youngest. Yeah. When, we, when I first started, I was the youngest kid in there and I was amongst judges, lawyers, uh, you know, firemen, all walks of life, like, but pretty, you know, well-respected individuals that were actually looking up to me because I was getting good at this art that they were also interested. So in, at that age, it was a cool experience because nobody really took me serious mm-hmm. outside my family. They just thought, oh, look at this young punk. He fights all the time. Even though, you know, I never got my feelings hurt because that wasn't even in my vocabulary. That, But it, it, when I felt the respect factor, and this is real respect, not fake respect this is the real respect of uh, like i said a judge or a lawyer saying hey man can you really teach me that arm bar and i'm like you want me to teach you something okay 16 years old and it was like oh thank you and, and you get praise from that 
Not to say that I, I did it for that, but man, that for a 16 year old male, it makes you feel good and it makes you look a little differently at the future. Yeah. So that one little moment in my life, I felt that feeling. I was like, man, I want to continue doing this. And whatever got me addicted, it became much more. So that addiction of feeling that became, oh, now I'm addicted to learning this move. Now I want to get good at this. Oh, this is here. This is there. This is problem solving. And then I'm still at 43 years old, 20 something years later, I still crave it. I still come in. I want to learn something. I learn from all my students. And at the same time, I'm able to pass this lifestyle on to other people and the same lifestyle that's changed my life for the better. You brought something up there that you hit on like the community, how I think jujitsu is definitely the most diverse community I've ever been associated with. You mentioned everything from judges, celebrity chefs, you got, you and Phil got some of the Eagle players show up there. Yeah, like yep. Brandon Brooks, Trey Thomas, you, you, not uncommon to see professional athletes, but then you have like bartenders, the unemployed, you have people that are working construction, you have lawyers, you have every walk of life, every race. It's so cool. And it's just a big melting pot. And once you step on the mat, everybody's equal. Doesn't matter if you make yeah. a grand a year or you're unemployed, that unemployed person, like you said, starts tapping out the guy making 600 grand a year. He's like, how do you do that? And all of a sudden like that, like you're like, you have the unemployed person teaching the, like the lawyer. Isn't it crazy? Right. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu has a weird way of stripping you from your stigma, right? Yes. And when you, when you get put on the mat, it's like you shake hands. It's, it's like that slap and that pound, right? Mm-hmm. And you forget about everything. I pride myself on creating a world within this crazy world we live in. And I'm able to share the mat with so many different people of all walks of life, of all ethnicities, of all religions, of all occupations, of anything. And for the most part, Phil and I did a great job of keeping that kindness, ambience, family atmosphere. So with my, my doctor's a black belt. My dentist is the black belt. I got lawyers. He's a black belt. I got like we we all network within each other, and it's not like these people are like the bottom of their. But I got guys, lawyers who work on Sadusky cases. I got the, my dentist is. These are this attracts. Yeah. You know, good. Not only good people. I should say in our imbalance, we attract the good people because you, you tend to if you have so many good people and so many you know kind people, mm-hmm. you wean out. You wean out the bad people because people with bad intentions don't last long yep. in an atmosphere like we created. And I love it. I love it. We know we all know what the world we're living in right now and the world that we were living in for the past two years. It's just been like so divided. And jujitsu was never like that. Like even when this stuff was happening before, man, we just went to jujitsu. Mm-hmm. The great life. Because we understand. I understand. Hey, you're a human being. Let's go. Some of my best friends. And some of my best students were Muslim, mm-hmm. you know, still to this day, mm-hmm. you know, but we never see it. We, we always break each other's stuff, but we never see that. We don't see that stuff in jujitsu. Yeah. You know what I see? Oh my God. He's awesome at a guard pass. Teach yeah. me that guard pass. Like yeah. we don't care about anything else other than getting better. And yeah. then if we compete with each other and remember, we're not really competing with each other. The only reason why I'm competing with you so I can be as better than I was yesterday. Yeah. And then I hope that I'm in return doing that same favor to you. Mm-hmm. And at the end result, my God, all we do is go up, up 
And I get to know these people at the same time. I get to experience their culture. I get to experience. I think people go blindly into meeting people so much with their own agenda, like what things are, because you listen, if you spend most time listening to media and all this other bullshit, Mm. man, they already created the image for you. Mm -hmm. And it's a fake image because you didn't, did you ever meet somebody that, did you ever meet an Italian guy? Did you ever go to a Sunday dinner? This is a great story. Do you remember Yale? Absolutely. The female purple mm-hmm. belt that was yeah, coming? I do. She, a long time ago, her father was from Israel and I think her mother as well. And she came down here, I think for a summer, she was doing an intern. Mm-hmm. So it became friendly and she, she was doing an internship with us. And then I got a chance to go to Canada. She's from Canada. So I got a chance to go to Canada to take over a school there for a week. That's where she did jujitsu and it was a guy there. Her family opened up their doors to me so I could stay there. They had their own little like quarters. I think the father was like an architect. Awesome house. I had my own little place. It was like I had my own little like uh, apartment away from there, if I can remember correctly. And I remember them asking me if I want to do what's the Friday dinners. Yeah, yeah. They said, look. You don't have to join us. We do this every Friday. Okay. And I said, they gave me the option, which was cool too. But for me, I cre- I love culture. If I'm in, if I'm there, I'm doing it. So I got a kippa. I even learned what a kippa was. I got the kippa. It's not a yarmulke. It's a kippa. They gave me my own kippa. I went in there. I remember that was the first time I had avocado toast, and I was hooked. <laughs> but not that they were trying to convert me. But I got to share an experience. I went, I did it. I don't judge people. I never did. I never did. Mm. My father, that was another lesson my father told uh, my brother and I. We couldn't even hate a TV show, let alone a person. Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to hate. Like if I said, I hate that you have kids, like I hate that, I don't want that, you hate. We got got in trouble for saying that. So it's, you don't hate anything. You know why? Because you waste a lot of energy on something you don't even know about. And he goes, the reason why you don't, you hate this is because you don't know about it. You hate mathematics because you don't know it. Mm-hmm. I bet you if you knew it inside and out, you would love math. I bet you if you knew this, you would love it. That's what my brother and I, that's our take on anything that we encounter for the first time. It's, I want to know. I'm interested. That's the thing. Even if it's an evil thing, oh, I want to know what you're about. You know why? Because I don't shy away from something that's going to give me a lesson, whether it's a good lesson or a bad lesson. I say, I want to know. I'd rather not live in ignorance because when you live in ignorance, then the stupid people rule you Yeah, yeah. With, their, with their fake facts and this and that and their opinions. Synthesizing what you said. First off, jujitsu helps you approach life open-minded. And then you're starting yourself with a really positive community. And then when you compete, it's not against them. It's about you yesterday. You're trying to be better yes. than you yesterday. So you're basically, you're stepping on the mat, walking into life open-minded with positive community. And then the competition is just against yourself. But then yeah. you do that, you just can't help but get better. No, it's going to get a little bit better. Yeah. If you stick with this stuff, you can be as fast and as slow as you want to be. You're eventually going to get there. Now, there's two fascinating groups that you met with. One, how did you first meet Steve Maxwell? And then how did you get to go to the academy in Torrance under Hordian Gracie and Elio? I know you trained right under Elio and Hordian, got your, your legit Helson Gracie black belt, literally learning from the Gracie family when they brought the art. Like going to an Ivy League school. If jiu-jitsu was the Ivy League, you'd be going to you'd be going to University of Penn or uh, Brown. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I just appreciate all the opportunities I was able to, to have. It's like the opportunities that presented themselves and I took advantage of. There's opportunities 
all over the place. But if you don't take advantage of opportunities, then what good are they? And the one opportunity going get to like meeting Steve Maxwell. I don't know if too many people know. I spoke about this before, but my mother was an aerobics teacher for Society Hill Swim Club. Mm-hmm. That was a swim club that we had here in Philly and in, in Center City. And she took the job so we would have somewhere to go, the kids, during the summer, like a pool and stuff. Because, again, we had no money. So my mom put together, she learned exercises, and she just did it. She found a way just to make it work for her kids so her kids had somewhere to go. So during this time, Steve Maxwell was an aerobics teacher, but an intense one. He had something that was called Rambo aerobics. He, the, this, kid, this guy was saying, so imagine me, I'm a kid. Man, I had to be 10, 11. I don't even know how old I was. I'm, I was a kid, though. In this one club, he would dress in fatigues, look like a G.I. Joe. He had a beret, everything, glasses. He looked like Sergeant Slaughter, but like, you know, better looking one, right? Put together, this, he was so nuts that he had a rope off the roof and he used to was lapel down and, and go to the ground and run into his class. As a kid, Seeing that, I'm like, holy shit, the G.I. Joe guy. I said, who the hell is this guy? So he was always a fascinating person because he was always in whatever the newest workout, diet, craze was. He became involved in it. And it was just like it was an amazing thing because in retrospect, he made himself the guinea pig for us. Mm-hmm. And then finally, that's what led him to like doing jujitsu. So after the aerobics thing, that Society Hill Swim Club bankrupt. So now during this time, his wife was pregnant with Zach Maxwell with this place bankrupt and her being pregnant. Or she just had the baby. It was something around that time. I think she just had Zach. They didn't know what to do because that was their life. So the both of them wind up renting a place on 7th and Chestnut. My mom also being out of work became friendly with them because through the aerobics, she offered to babysit. Zach. In return, I was babysitting them as well as they built their little mini empire, Maxercise. Mm-hmm. So that's how Maxercise became something. It was actually off of the bankruptcy of the Society Hill Swim Club. Wow. And they had all these clients that they were, because she did super slow training there. And then I think she took a couple of trainers from there that needed jobs and she set them up in Maxercise. It was then that Steve Maxwell would be at, I, I'm almost positive he went to a, an exercise sports expo. And in that expo, wherever it was, Coyce Gracie was there. It was something around that. I wasn't there. This is coming from Steve, if I can remember correctly. Steve, being a state champion wrestler, saw this, you know, Hoist Gracie, whatever he was, 170 pounds at the time, demonstrating his art. And at the first, you don't hear about jiu-jitsu. You're like, look at this bullshit. And then Steve, being a wrestler, was like, I'll take this dude down and whatever. So I think it was like a live thing where it was like a little mat there. And then according to Steve, he went and like got choked out. As smart as he was like, instead of shying away from that, he was like, what is this? And how can I get involved? Now, at the time, remember, he's, you know, putting exercise together. He's, he's just formulating his, the beginning of his family and he's getting this stuff done. So he started a little club in there. I think it was one time he came and my brother was there because my brother was actually going to school in Lawrenceville and he would visit on the weekends. So Phil being heavily into martial arts early in life and also yoga, they met while Steve was picking up, you know, Zach from my house. So they started talking. Steve Maxwell invited Phil. He's come down. He goes, we got two or three guys. Just come down. We, we need, we want people to practice on stuff. 
And that's how it got started. Wow. So my brother and Steve started building up this club. What it started in first, there was nothing. We actually had the original exercise mats. Really? Because Yeah, because when they, the first mats, they retired them once the gym started growing. And Phil said, can I take them? He took them in my mom's basement. So I think we have them either here or at the other studio. It's, and that's historic because that's the first jujitsu match that ever hit Philly. That was one so, of the first jujitsu schools on the East Coast, right? It was. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure like who the first, we were one of the first, we were the first generation here, especially in Philly. Philly's, wow. we, we started. I know Henzo was here for a little bit, but then he left and started his thing in, in uh, New York. And then the only place was, was, Exercise. People came from all over. We had a guy, we nicknamed him Turnpike Mike because he took the turnpike just to come to us. People would travel yeah. because I don't have to tell you, but for anybody listening that doesn't do jujitsu, once you do it, I don't know what heroin feels like, but I can assume that high is the same as it because I'm so addicted to this. It's not even like coming in and, 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 and winning and do it. it's just a lifestyle. It's, it's unexplainable, really, because it goes into depth into so many different areas in life that we can spend a hundred podcasts on this and talk about different aspects of how it improves your life and, and so on and so forth. I walked into Max Exercise for the first time in '99, so I was like, I was training karate for like ten years. I yeah. walked in. I, I used to get uh, Black Belt Magazine as a karate guy, and I would read it. And there, Corey and Gracie would have an ad in Black Belt Magazine every month, full page ad. Picture him saying 20 hours of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu will be 20 years of stand-up karate. Gracie Challenge come. And I'm like, BS. There's no chance. I was living in Maniunk and I went down. I walked in, saw Steve. I was a beginner class, showed up. And uh, I just say, I've been training for a while. I just want to see what this is about. And uh, he basically said, all right, here. He put me in a headlock, really low, like really low headlock, base down. He goes, what would you do here? And if he didn't let go, I would still be there. Like, I, I, I have no answer. 10 years of karate, I know. He goes, do it to me. I did it to him. He did, like, the combatives move, rolled me, boom, out, frame, arm bar. And I'm like, he goes, that's jujitsu. And I'm like, where do I sign up? And yeah. uh, so I sign up, and then you walk in. And I go to karate class and, like, you know, hold my own. And I would go there, and there were just stone-cold killers there. Like, it was you. It was Bill, it was uh, Marco Perazzo, it was Jared Wiener, Big Tim Carpenter, Fireman Joe. It was crazy the people that were there. And I'm like, it, this place is crazy. Little Tony was there. Yeah. Uh, just the level of people that were there, like that community. I'm like, whoa, where was this for the last? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It was so eye opening. So, how did you go from there? How did you decide to go out to Torrance? The train right under Elio, Horty, and Helson. How'd that come about? So it was actually when you started. You, you mentioned 1999. 1999 was when I came back from the Worlds. Mm-hmm. I won the Worlds that year. Mm-hmm. Or I got second, I should say. So I, I placed in the Worlds that year in Brazil. And But prior to that, I was a couple years into the academy. So when I started... Phil has all, was already in the actual teacher's program or the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu teacher's program, which I don't even think they have anymore. I think we were the last graduates. I wanted to do it so bad, but it, it, even if I was Phil's brother, it didn't matter. It's like you still had to pay. We had to pay a, you know, a monthly fee and then even moving down there and paying a monthly fee. So it's like people get a lot of stuff for free now. They don't realize how much money 
I'll just say my brother and I, because that's all I can really speak for. How much money we put forth and how much time we put forth to be able to learn not new moves, but learn how to teach or convey this basic, the basics, and even running into the advanced stuff to other people. So it's not easy because you can be a 12-time world champion, and that's awesome. But if you don't have the didactic, is that the right word, skills to pass this stuff on, what good are you to a beginner student? Mm-hmm. Other than a cool story, I met Ricardo. He's won the world, won the Pan Ams. He's awesome, but uh, he really can't teach me anything. Mm-hmm. So with Helson Gracie, he prided us on you got to do both. You got to compete, which I hated competing. I, I never liked competing. And you have to be an instructor. You have to teach the stuff and you have to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. So. I finally got the opportunity and there was a guy that worked at the, his name was Sam. He worked, he was their business guy. And I guess he was in charge with the okay of Horian and Hoist with the people who are allowed to step on. And I got refused a couple of times. I like, there was like a, a um, what do you call it? Recruiting uh, system that you would call, you would, you would write in, or I forgot what exactly what it was. But it wasn't like we had like social media here. Here's what I do. And here's what I did. You actually had people, they like skipped over you. If they didn't have, you know, enough space, I don't care who your brother was. He was in there, but it was no, there was no sibling entry specialty. So I finally got, they said, look, Steve Maxwell said, look, you've been teaching the kids class. And that's how we started teaching the kids class. And I would do some beginner. It was the intro class that we did. He goes, but you have to have this amount of money. This is what's going to cost them us. You got to get your own way out there. You got to, you know, you support yourself. And that's just what it is. And I said, you know what? I worked my ass off. I worked in nightclubs morning, night. I did whatever I had to do to save money. I saved so much money that I was able to move to California. This is at 18, 19, however old I was. Moved to California, able to monthly. I remember it was like $800 a month for just to be on the program. Wow. And and the only reason I remember that because it was also $800, really $1,600, but I split living costs with my brother with Phil. Mm-hmm. And we lived in a one, we lived in a studio, I think it was. I don't even think it had one room. It was just like a studio. No, it was one room. It was one bedroom, but it was in a complex. It looked like Melrose Place. But to us, we were from South Philly. We saw palm trees in a pool. I'm like, we're rich. <laughs> but really, we're in Torrance in like the low level yeah. you know, area. But we didn't care, man. We did what we had to do to, all we cared about was training and eating. Because that was our body. We had to fuel our body in order to go. And we still had to get little jobs. I had to work at the nightclubs down there. Because nightclubs provided me a good avenue of cash. Because it, it took less time less time up. And it gave me enough money to survive, we'll say. Okay. So I was able to go down there. I learned a lot. I learned off of Hoist, Helson, Horian. I grew up with Henner, like I grew up down there with Henner and Huron, those, you know, and, and, and all their brothers and sisters. And you just get, I have friends there that I'll have for the rest of my life. And their mission in, in, is the same as our mission. We want to pass this stuff on, but pass it on correctly. I can't tell you how many times I, I go on the internet or I see people explaining self-defense techniques or doing this and doing that. And it's just, just wrong, man. It's, man. People still don't know how to shop for jujitsu. Yeah. You don't know how, they don't know how to shop for it. 
No. It's if you have a picture with a Gracie on your website going like this, they're like, oh, this is the place to be. Yeah. And it's just good marketing sometimes undermines your purchase there. You brought something up about self-defense. Like today, and that jujitsu moves now are just, it's unlimited. There's thousands and thousands of moves of jujitsu. And there's two parts of it. There's the self-defense aspect, and then there's the sport aspect, the competitive aspect. Yeah. You speak to, I think one of the things that you and Phil just did so well is not only do you guys have competitors and you guys compete, but you stay true to the roots like that Helsin self-defense. Can you speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. self-defense is important because it, it, if you're going to do statistics, it's I would say over 90% people walk in this academy to learn how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. That's how they start off. Usually uh, a little more now because the sport's a little more uh, popular and with the UFC, like mostly MMA, I want to do MMA or I want MMA, but it's a very small percentage. It's either people who start training and then get interested in competing, but mm-hmm. it's never the reason why they actually walked in. Mm-hmm. It's either for fitness or to learn how to protect themselves. And we're getting a lot of that now. Mm-hmm. We're getting a lot more beginners now, but just because of how crazy it's been in Philly. It's been, been pretty dangerous in Philly. So people are now saying, okay, I got to worry about my health and I got to worry about my, my well-being if somebody calls me and attacks me. Yeah. So I love, matter of fact, today is the start of street week. Awesome. First week of every month. First week of every month, I do what's called street week. Basically, it is going over street tactics. What happens if somebody attacks you on the street? What if they're punching one of them? And that's the true jujitsu that we actually started with. There wasn't any sports jujitsu when I started. When we passed the guard, we were throwing punches. Yep. It evolved yep. into something like a sport. And that got and, and it served its purpose because I like the sport too, because it actually it catered to a lot more of the population. Because it's like, how many people want to get just get punched in the face all the time? Not many people. So it's almost like, okay. With my students, and I, and I think for, for the most part, all my students love my self-defense classes because I make them interesting and I combine all the moves together, but I'm good at hiding the broccoli and the mashed potatoes. Yeah. If, if you have kids, you know what that means. You understand? So <laughs> I hide that broccoli in there. So they think they're eating mashed potatoes, but I'm like, I sneak in, oh, protect your face, do this, do that, do that. And then we have a great, like, I'll videotape my class today, man. I got a great, I got about 30 people that come in my noon class just to do the self-defense stuff. I make them bring the gloves in. We're not beating the crap out of each other. That's not how you, that's not how you learn anyway. Just knowing the distance and everything is important. It it keeps that tradition of how, what Gracie Jiu-Jitsu really is. And that's my definition for it too. I talk about this too with Marco at his podcast because people always ask me, what's the difference between BJJ and, and, and GJJ? Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, what's the difference? And I'm like, really? I, technically, I don't think there's any difference. I said, my personal definition, this is the way I, I dif- differentiate the two, is BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, caters more to sport. Gracie Jiu-Jitsu caters more to street self-defense mm-hmm. and, and, and everything. And, and, it's, and it could be the sport moves, but with strikes. Okay. You know? So that's my personal definition. I don't know if that's like a set in stone definition, but that's it's one of those questions that a lot. Because people who are looking up, like, what's the difference with Grace Jiu-Jitsu? They want to buy, they want to do the stuff. They don't know the difference. So yeah. I just put my own definition to it. Well, thank you for sharing that. This is probably the best definition I heard in a while, the difference between the two. What yeah. are your thoughts, all your experience teaching? Someone's first BJJ class, they know nothing. What's the great first class for them? Like, is there a specific technique you teach them? Like, how do you take someone's first class? So you were doing a one-on-one. Yo. Standing in base. Yep. 
understanding base, what base is. We usually do let them know bump and roll mm-hmm. and elbow escapes because it goes over the hip movement that's important for all jujitsu moves. Okay. And it's not something that's going to be the so standing up in base and recognizing your base is just, you know, it's, it's, it's not anything threatening. The escaping from the bottom gets rid of that, that in your mind that the guy's bigger, stronger, he's on top of you, you're losing the fight kind of deal. And it's easy to teach because that's all about shifting the person's weight to make them lighter, to take them over, to get in a better position. Mm-hmm. So I think, and you don't want to ever, like me personally, as and this is something that we learned in the Grace Academy, you don't want to overwhelm people with 50 million moves. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, because they'll wind up getting nothing out of the hour. You don't want to make it too difficult where they're going to get, and jujitsu is not difficult if you do it right slow, mm-hmm. where they're going to get frustrated and then move on. Because I, I've been at, how many birthday parties did you take your kids to? How many like events did you go and jujitsu? comes up to somebody. I call them normies, by the way, a normie, somebody who doesn't do jujitsu is a normie. <laughs> so and a normie comes up and says, Hey, I took a jujitsu class, but it's like, Oh, I, I couldn't. It was too with this. And, that. and I'm always curious. Cause I'm like, wow. I said, what did you learn? A oh, flying triangle my first day. And I'm like, there you go. Mm-hmm. Because people, because it's so competitive right now. I think the, the business of jujitsu I think when somebody walks in, they're so eager to say, hey, look at us. We're cool. Look at the cool stuff we do. Yep. And I'm like, okay, you can show somebody you can jump in the air. And, but that you don't realize how much that discourages people because that's like going and taking a basketball course with Michael Jordan mm-hmm. and uh, Jordan going dunking, showing you the dunk from the key. Yep. And like, all right, do it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so inferior. I can't do that. But jujitsu, as we both know, is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Jiu-Jitsu is for everybody, no matter age. I got a guy here. Willie's what, yeah. 70? He'll be like close to 76, 77. Such a baller. On the mat. We had amputees. We had people with like congenital anomalies. We got people. There's all sorts of, and there's a style for you. Mm-hmm. There's a style for you. And that's another beautiful thing about jujitsu. It doesn't discriminate, whether it's anatomically or, or mentally, or it's a beautiful thing that way. Jiu-Jitsu can get, be taken into so many realms where it's so beneficial for you. Here's something I know I've struggled with through the years. There's so many moves out there and you go to class and there's amazing techniques that you learn. How do you know when to add another technique or keep working on something you haven't mastered yet? Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's hard to know when you actually master something because jujitsu and positions are so malleable that man, one one little thing that you learned could be set off by something as small as, oh, the person's body type is different. Okay. So What's true mastery of a move or a position? Mm. True mastery in my book, let's take a simple technique. Let's take the arm bar from the mount. We know that, you know that. So first you learn the actual fundamentals of it. Hopping up, going around, sitting down, taking the arm. Hopping up, doing that a thousand times. Then you got to put a little bit of real realism into it. Maybe the person fights back a little bit and you're going to learn about, oh, this adjustments are important. And I'm such an advocate of learning or not only learning how to catch the move, but learning how to not catch them. These are steps. You want to first learn the basics and the fundamentals of the move and how it constructs. And you got to take a while of that. You got to own that. Then you want to learn if I don't catch this move, where am I at? Change the whole dynamic of the move. And then you got to do it on different body types. And you got to do it on this person's flexible and this. So you can technically, you can spend six months to a year on one technique and still not really 
experience every little aspect of that move. I've had moves that I learned in 1999 that because of other positions evolved and other things came up, it, let's say that whole position changed. That whole position's changed because of the evolution of the sport and evolution of the fighting. So do you really master anything? The only thing you can master is your ability to learn. Okay. Yeah. That's really the only thing you should master is your ability and your openness to learn and be open to new things. Then also you got to recognize bullshit when you see it too. Yeah. As we both know, I'm like, like the king of injuries here. I had to go around different things. I can't do some things just because of, you know, the injuries that, I, that occurred in my career. And it was either me giving up and saying, and, and, and presenting an excuse that oh, I can't do it. Or, like my dad would say, maneuvering around and making it work. And that's how I came up with the broken butterfly. That's how I came up with that side mount positioning. It's not that I invented it. It's that I constructed positions that accommodate whatever whatever was going on with my body. I just, I learned how to do it. Like I say, that's why I love dogs and love animals. Because yeah. you cut a dog's two legs off, that dog will learn to walk on his, that dog doesn't give up. That dog picks his legs Never. up. You ever see the walk? And I don't advocate cutting dogs' legs off. That was just an example. That was just to get your attention. Yeah. You mentioned that the surgeries. How many surgeries have you had? Five. Wow. Five. Ugh, five major ones. I always say, if it wasn't for my like surgeries, like they do set you back, mm-hmm. and there are certain things that you can and cannot do anymore. Man, if I had the flex, I'd be unstoppable because I still feel like I feel like I'm better than I was in my twenties. Yeah. And. Uh, just your body better. Obviously, you learn more techniques and stuff like that. But my wind is my wind is still good. My strength is the only thing sometimes that keeps me from doing certain things is the injuries and stuff like that. Stuff that's going to occur even if you didn't do jujitsu, I think. Yeah. But one of the things I found remarkable studying under you for a number of years is that every time you had a surgery, like you said, you maneuvered. You came yeah. back. You evolved and your game got better. Like the broken yeah. butterfly came in. If you read any Ryan Holiday of the obstacles, the way some people get destroyed by obstacles. Some people survive. Some people, yeah. some people get better because of the obstacles. And I've seen that in your jujitsu game evolve because of your surgeries. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, it goes back to my dad saying maneuver. And mm-hmm. I feel like I was raised by jujitsu as well as my dad. And they both, corresponded with each other whatever my dad was teaching me jujitsu taught me the same thing and i should say my mother too i don't only mind because she both of those my my two parents were a great combination of personality and and, and ethics and and values that created what phil and i are today so that combination is just incredible and and adding to that jujitsu combination there was no such thing as failure my dad, by raising us like that, created a craving to do better. Like I crave, like I can't lose. I was like, oh my God, I'm not. my whole thing was, I always want to be better. I was always scared that I would be behind. I Phil was what, three years ahead of me in school. I was so nervous. I used to have nightmares about just being stupid. Mm-hmm. Like in school, and I was like, I would grab, I was like, keep your textbooks. I just want to read your textbooks. And I'm like, he goes, read your textbooks. You're going to learn this three years. I was like, I know, I got to be prepared. I got to do this and that. So, as crazy as that sounds, I want to just get better. And then, whatever presented itself, whether it's an injury, I'm not going to stop doing jujitsu. Yeah. What I've seen training under you 
was that it, it gave you an empathy or an awareness that like episode three, Andrea Terrain, we blew our knees out together like right. within a couple months. And then we would show up at class and watch. Then you would actually bring us in. All right, we're, you're three months out. You should be doing this. You're six months out. You yeah. should be that. And you actually instructed like game plans of like, right, this is how you yeah. come back from injuries. So you knew the way. Then not only that, but you showed the way. Like you actually brought people with you. Yeah. I found that really, and that was so beneficial. But we all do that for each other. We all do that. I happen to experience that before you guys. I had a great result. What I have, that's the family atmosphere we have. You guys came in, Andrea. She was, I was there when she popped her knee and almost saw it as it was getting done. And I was like, oh shit. She's the, she's one of the toughest <laughs> bitches I ever met. Oh my God. Because she didn't even like yelp, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you okay? I said, I heard it. She's like, yeah. yeah. You know how soft spoken she is. Oh, yeah, she's fine. But yeah, very fine. tough, super tough. And right then and there, as we're speaking, I was like, she's going to need surgery. I don't want to say that. I said, get it checked out. Keep me posted. I was already formulating. I was like, I was more scared that it was going to discourage her Mm -hmm. from from doing jujitsu again. And I was like, it's like almost saying, man, this little uh, bump in the road, I would never want to discourage anybody from doing this thing that I know is going to make her a better person. And it didn't. She came in. As promised, and as promised, I'll go out of my way to help people who want to be want to be helped. And I love that. I love that about, and that's most of our students at Balance Studios. I have a couple quick rapid fire questions. I call share your secrets, just so people can get to know you a little bit better as a person. Would that be cool with you? Yeah. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? Fatherhood. What you learn from it? What's the best lesson? Uh, I mean, I'm. You're constantly learning from it. That the sometimes. My approach, I had to be taught different approaches to all my kids individually mm. and recognizing that each of them have different personalities. Sometimes the approach that I took was a standard approach where now I'm a little more malleable in my approach with each of them individually because I have to recognize they, they all had individual personalities. It's something that jujitsu made me, but when I say jujitsu has made me a better father because you do the same thing in jujitsu. Like you have to take a different approach and passing a guard if the person has long legs, this and that, and that and this. And I felt like when I had kids in the beginning, I might have, I was stubborn because I'm always like this and that. And I was pretty stern. I believe in having a very structured, very stern, very no nonsense raising of, of kids. I feel like they need that. My wife today, she's taught me a lot about the approach that we do currently. And she's a genius when it comes to that. She's such a great, she's like my go-to person for that stuff. So I think that's been the, because with your kids, it's not like you can't, you can quit jujitsu, but you can't quit your kids. (laughs) Seriously, not that I would ever do both. I would never quit either of them. But it's, that's, that is, I think in every man's life, even if a man just leaves their family, you can't ever leave that. It's going to come back. You're going to have to deal with it sooner or later. It's a blessing in disguise because talk about learning. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I have three daughters, so I'm learning a lot. And you don't have any gray hair yet. What's going on with that? Oh, That's it's funny. in there. I just, shaved, I just shaved my head. <laughs> like you said, you individualize your yeah. learning and you individualize how you instruct each person. That's fantastic. Yeah, this is the difference. In jujitsu, you can make mistakes and come back. I'm very like hard on myself where it's like, man, I don't want to make a mistake with my kids. One little mistake of me doing one thing or another can change their view, change this and that. But at the older they get, and if you have older kids too, the older they get, the more, and they're smart today. They are very much with it today. 
Yeah. Which is another thing. I watch what you say. One of my daughters will take things literally. Mm-hmm. My other daughters, whatever. Okay. That, you know, dad's just doing this. My son doesn't speak English. He's like, he's in his own world. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, you got to approach. And then when you're yelling at all of them, the only person that listens to me is my dog. Next question. Then. Yes. Question. Uh, what failure of yours set you up for a future success? Do you have a favorite failure? Oh, do I have a favorite failure? That's a good question. I would say, here's a good failure. Because this one I talk about a lot. This was, as I was hanging out, I was hanging out on the street and hanging out with friends and and just doing stupid stuff. I had an incident that happened. And I don't know if this is a failure or not, but it was was something that actually triggered me to really pay attention to jujitsu. It was a fight that I got into off of a basketball court. And it was with some bad people who came back and I was hanging out with these guys who weren't really beneficial to hang out with, weren't going to lead me anywhere, but either dead or in jail. This particular fight that I got into, those kids wind up finding me and cornering me with this. In that particular, in that particular situation, it was almost in slow-mo. I'll never forget it. I started looking around and I looked at all the kids that I was hanging out with and I saw how scared they were and how really they didn't have my back and how really insincere their friendship was to me. If that makes any sense. Or it's it just, everything's, it's almost like the truth came out in that one little mistake that I made with either hanging out with them. I was in a crossroads in jujitsu because I was like doing a couple classes here and it was only until after that situation is that I realized who I was with, I left. I never went back. Mm-hmm. I'm friendly with a lot, some of the guys today. I see them. I try to get them involved in jiu-jitsu. But that was the one situation that set me to be in the gym every day. Awesome. So I'm, I went from going periodically, learning here and there, and then going to the street and you know protecting myself and this and that. To seeing what the truth came out, I'm like, man, these guys aren't really my friends. Or even if they were my friends or friendly with me, they really didn't have my best interest. It led me to jump in the gym. And I think that was one of the important moments in my life. How about when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body? What do you do? Recharge my body. Sometimes I like to walk the dog. If I'm walking the dog, which I haven't been doing lately. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Walking the dog long drive. You know what I do in the middle of picking up my kids from school? Mm-hmm. I like driving. I just go in. I don't even know how I get to places on it, but it's just I guess it's being alone with myself. Yep. So when I'm alone with myself, and I like being alone with myself. Not that I don't like the company that I have, and I love my family, I love being with them. Yeah. But even even my wife will tell you she likes to just be alone. And it's just yeah. something about being alone that you can have. I almost have conversations with myself and it relaxes myself and it almost resets and I can reevaluate whatever I'm going to do or whatever I did. And if I did it, how do I add to that? And if I did it wrong, how can I correct that? Because mm-hmm. nobody's infallible. It's just like we get to the point where I make mistakes, you make mistakes. That's another thing jujitsu teaches you. It's like you make mistakes. Sometimes you can't come back from it, but hopefully you live to, to correct it in the future. You don't make it habitual. Yeah, And I think yeah. that's the whole thing with life. You, you, you make mistakes. I think if we can eradicate a lot of the habits or the bad habits, I think you're on your way to success.
Yeah. Make mistakes, adapt, adapt and adjust and move on. Yeah. yeah, you adapt to the different things. And then me personally, I like being alone. Sometimes I wake up. So I'll give you an example. I wake up four o'clock in the morning sometimes. Like this morning, I wake up, I woke up, I think about four forty-five, five o'clock. And I usually walk the dog, clear, nobody's out, it's dark. If you're out, you got bad intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, I, they're usually not around me. And then I go back, I make the kids' lunches. And they go through the lunches. Once that's done, the, the coffee's done perking. And I sit down in my chair and I just in quiet because the kids are sleeping. My wife's sleeping. The dog even goes back to bed. <laughs> and I can be a, either alone with my thoughts. Sometimes I'll play chess. And as I'm playing, I'm, I'm like contemplating, oh, what am I going to do today? It's just relaxing. Yeah, and I and, and like those are, those are the moments that I crave that kind of stuff. You talk about success, right? Mm-hmm. How do you measure a success? It's different for everybody. And you can measure success with money, how much money you have. You can measure success on how much, you know, valuables you have. But for me personally, that stuff counts, but it's not what I call success. Success for me is the amount of time that I have for the stuff that I love to do. If I have, if I don't have time, I don't have success. Actually, there's a book here, Tony Robbins book. Yeah. Yeah. This Absolutely. book right here, I read during my last, uh, my brother got me this. How great y'all for? Yeah. Master of the Game. Yep. I remember one particular part in there. He was talking about, he was talking about uh, a situation where, and I won't do it verbatim, I'll just give you the idea. It's if somebody had $2 billion, he has $2 billion, and he made a wrong move in the stock market, and it cut that half. So he had only had $1 billion. He wind up committing suicide because of the number that he lost. Now, this guy had a billion dollars. You you start to wonder, how did he measure his success? How did that one situation decide for him whether he can exist or not? That's amazing to me because it's a man. Is money that important? Because if you allow money to represent your success, then that's and and that's it. It should be. That should be a, whatchamacallit, that should be a result of your a success, I would think. Mm-hmm. Anything that you love yeah. to do, like the jujitsu, I didn't know I was going to make money or even make a living doing it. I just knew I loved to do it. And with my passion, I just knew I, I'll work at a restaurant my whole life in order to feed that desire to do jujitsu. I was ready to do that. I didn't care. I knew I love this shit. I want to do it. Let's go. It just happened. My love for jujitsu became a job and I can, and I became successful, not because of the money that I made, but because of the time I created to not only help people, but to help myself because you can't help people unless you help yourself first. Yeah. Uh, it's like the airplane thing, man. Put your mask on first before someone else. I always say that. I always use that analogy. It's funny you said that. I always say, what does the airplane say? They say, you're of no use to anybody else. To summarize your personal definition of success, I think it's one word. I think it's freedom, like the freedom to live the life, to do what you want when you want to do it, basically. That's awesome. Yeah. Next question. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? The kids class, the kids program. Because I actually, we created a 12-week program for the kids. And we taught a good kids program before, but you know how jiu-jitsu is. Jiu-jitsu is mostly adults, less kids. But my focus now, I had a huge focus on MMA. The MMA dwindled a little bit in balance, which was fine because during the COVID, there was nowhere for any of these guys to go. And I don't blame, I don't blame any of them. And actually I never got paid off of anybody. I actually lost money. I actually lose money when I work with the MMA guys. They would pay their monthly dues here, 
Well, besides, like, I never took a percentage out of their thing because I chose not to. That's not the way I made my money. And I and it was actually a way that I can help them. And in a way, I love to train with those guys because it kept me sharp, too. Mm -hmm. And I developed such a great relationship with all those guys. We always prided ourselves on having an elite MMA team. Like, I wouldn't train anybody who I thought was a bad person out there. So these people are all good people, and they're all hardworking and stuff like that. That's awesome. So being at the COVID... um, eliminated a lot of that my pure focus is on the kids class i want to develop i want to start from the core i want to i want to get these kids to experience this lifestyle experience this life-changing thing at a young age like even younger than when i started just because i know not only does it create discipline respect but it's going to be create leaders in the fact that these kids are going to learn something and they're going to be able to pass it on and make better people out of the next generation and the next generation. I feel as though whatever you do in life, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a jujitsu guy, whether you're a lawyer, the way you're going to change the world and change the next generation is whatever you do, offer your service. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm only good at jujitsu, right? It's not, not too long ago. I went to, I was at a, the projects in North Philly and I jumped out of my car in the middle of traffic. Because I saw a bunch of kids having fun. They were having fun riding bikes. I jumped out of the car because I saw these young kids. They ranged from uh, five to 20. They were teens and then there was 20. And they were having a huge good time. I had my daughter in the car. So we were in traffic anyway. And I did a video of this. It's on my Instagram. You see that the guy blocked traffic in front of us. who's delivering a refrigerator. I was like, you know what? Let's turn a negative into a positive. Let me jump out of the car. I'm going to teach these guys a little jujitsu. Get everybody laughing. Get everybody pumping. I said, and now I'm going to invite some of these guys. And that's what I did. I jumped out. I get in the mix. I don't just talk about changing the world. I'm doing this. I get in there and I want to meet people. I want to change people. And that's the way I do it through jujitsu. So I was able to communicate with these groups of kids that I didn't even know. But the one kid read my shirt. He was like, oh, you know how I think it was one of Basil's shirts. Uh I said, look, I want to I said, I want to teach you a self-defense move. And the one kid was like, "Okay," because the one kid was actually jumping on the truck in front of us. They were just having fun. So I was like, you get down. And my daughter, I made my daughter get out of the car. I said, hold this. I said, I want you to videotape this. And we videotaped the self-defense move. And they all loved it. They all cheered. There was a grandmom on the side chair. But it was a great moment. And I'm glad my daughter saw it. Because instead, if you look behind my car, you see a 20-car pileup. Because this guy just ignorantly parked in front where he could have went to the side. And we could have we could have easily argued or whatever, but instead I jumped out of a car, and then the kids were jumping on the car on the truck. So I actually eliminated that too. <laughs> but it was a way that I can give back. A couple of those kids came in, and guess what? Every single one of those kids, I said it's going to be on my IG. I said uh, Animal Black Belt. Every single one of those kids that were out there, and they were filming me too. Private messaged me, and they're like, "You, yeah, thank you so much." But these are kids that I don't even know thanking me. That's awesome. We're doing something that that, that I think I got more out of it than they did. Yeah. That is, in my opinion, what needs to be done more. No matter what you're good at, no matter what your occupation is, if you're a good chef, cook something, make something, go go change people's life, be kinder to people. Yeah, you know, there's not enough of that. You know what? There is more of people blaming people, whether you're blaming them for your situation or situations going to house, but there's too much talking and not enough doing. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? Just to be kind and it's finishing things out. And with all the uh, the technology, I want to instill live in the moment kind of thing. I actually just recently, with the help of my wife, I took 
my phone away from my nine-year-old because I didn't realize. Sometimes you get ahead of yourself. You're like, just yeah, have the phone. You got so much stuff and you don't realize how involved they are on the phone. And it's, it almost takes over their childhood. So I try to get them more in reality. Like when I have time, when I get home, I'm always involved. I take them to the park, we play basketball, we do this. Hey, give me your phone. You guys do activities together. Da, da, da. Yeah. And my wife's very good with doing that as well. So if any values would be sent, the value of family is yeah. important. And yeah. then family goes, when I say family, that goes beyond blood. Mm-hmm. Because I have a whole family here in Bound yeah. Studios. Man. So yeah. my focus is on creating better people. Phil and I, that's our main motto here. It's like, you want to stay dangerous, but you want to build better humans. Stay dangerous, build better humans. That's fine. Yeah. Wrapping up, there's a couple quick ones. One fun one here. If Uh-oh. you could spend a day with any uh, BJJ instructor alive or dead, who would it be? Elio again. Yeah. You know why? Because I want to know why he really hit my brother that one time. (laughs) (laughs) That's a, you ever hear that story? Tell that. Yeah. I actually know why I love, I love the story. Phil will probably tell you this thing, but we used to have class with Elio Gracie every Thursday at the Gracie Academy. It was awesome. He spoke no English. He was translated either by his, with his grandsons, or there was a guy there who spoke Portuguese or Horian or whoever was in class. But obviously as jujitsu needs no translation, if you know how to teach her, which he did. So he was teaching the neck chop and we were like learning, like hitting the guy in the neck. And then, like I said, we got physical and he was probably in his nineties then. And hitting, and he, we would go on the ground with him. Look, he's in his 90s, but he held his own. I mean, he was bumping along. He was strong. So at the end of the class, we would always, we would go downstairs and they had a uh, juice bar. And it was, I remember Huron and Henner. They were, we were always joking. It was like being in a, in a, in a fraternity because we're always like either playing jokes on each other or it was great. It was a great little, a little atmosphere. So in Portuguese, I think it was either Huron or Henner. I forgot who was said it says to his their grandfather, Elio, that Phil doesn't believe that chop works. <laughs> Jokingly. And I just remember him laughing and even Elio laughing because he understood that he knew it was a joke. And Phil was like drinking his drink, I think. And Elio comes walking up and Phil's like, oh, hey, like he thinks he's going to have a conversation. And Elio chops him right in his neck. I think he spit half the drink out when he did that. But uh, man, it, it was priceless moments with like people like that. So then, look, there's a lot of people I would like to spend time with and, and pick their brain. That was the first one that came to mind because I saw you the, the picture in your back. I appreciate <laughs> that. Just two more questions. Yeah. You started off talking about the, that dinner table uh, with your mom and dad when you were like eight, nine years old. Yeah. If you could go back to that dinner table when you were 10 years old with all the people there, what would you want to tell them? I would thank them and I would say, I apologize for any resistance that I gave you, especially my dad, because man, now that I became a father and just living in life in general, I understand probably all his lessons that he's ever did to me. And remember, my father was looked at at the time as like a tyrant. People were like, oh my God, hey, you did that to the kid and you did this and you did that. And I look now, he was a genius. He's been dead for eight years or going on nine. I actually realized that way before he died. Mm-hmm. So he had, he knew about it. So I never have, I don't have any regrets. I never have any regrets when he passed away. Everybody mourns differently with stuff like that because people always ask me, say, oh man, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. And I'm like, yeah, he died young. We weren't brought up to mourn that way. I personally don't. I said, the only thing I can do for my dad is to take what he's taught us and that's what he would want. 
I don't ever say, oh, he had a bad life because he didn't. Oh, he, he might have died young, but so what? He lived and he died the way he wanted. He didn't die in a hospital. He didn't die. He's traveled the world. That, that man has done more for people than, than anybody that I ever encountered. And the lessons are learned. And even with my mother had some lessons too, man. I, I appreciate the, the combination of values that they created. And, and I do apologize if I can go back to that time. But, you know, that's what kids do. Okay. Hey, there's nothing like thanks and appreciation. Yeah, uh, that's all. And I realize how minuscule that I am in this world. So it helps me to appreciate even more. Absolutely. Last question. Yeah. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Oh, man. Well, I won't use the same one that I use with Marco. I said, but the other one is that I'm going to die stupid. <laughs> and that's another one for my dad. And my dad actually spoke at a university Penn graduation class because he got to go back. Now, he, he never graduated high school, but as he got older, and, he, and like I told you, he was highly educated. He did things for lawyers. He went back to school just, for, just to do it because they were offering free classes for uh, senior citizens. And he wound up speaking at a graduation. And his opening line was, if I can tell you guys anything, is that you guys are all going to die stupid. And then he got a... <gasps> Like from the crowd. And he goes, let me explain. He goes, knowledge is so important that it continuously changes and it continuous augments to knowledge and things are changing and appearing every day that it's impossible to know everything. So therefore, always continue learning. Always have an open mind. Always go at something with an open mind. You never want to be the smartest person in the room. And you want to be humble when it comes to, you know, learning. That was one of the interesting quotes that I heard from my dad. One of many. I think I can write a book of quotes just from my dad. (laughs) Basically summarizing there, stay open-minded, keep learning, be humble, and know that I am going to die stupid. Yes, sir. I think that is about as great as a spot as any to uh, wrap up. Ricardo Miglarese, it has been an honor. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. If people are looking for you and Balance Studios online, where can they find you online? Go to balancestudios.net. That's our main website. We have an Instagram, Balance MMA. And then my personal Instagram is Animal Black Belt. And my brother is Jiu-Jitsu Matrix on Instagram. And Animal Black Belt, you share some great stuff, like what you teach each day, share the move. And there's some great stuff on there. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, I'd like to thank you for all the help you've given me in the past with my with the injuries and just uh, the example yeah. you give, man. You lead by example and people follow. So I appreciate you, Ricardo. Thank you so Dude. much, bro. Feelings mutual.